For those of you who don't know me, I'm Stefan Dirksen, the pastor of Four Winds Ministry here at the church. And uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. One of the things, one of my hobbies, I'm, I'm into, you know, exercise and nutrition. And being the middle of February, I've already gone through my yearly thing that happens in January in the gym. And, and what happens is, in January, everyone has these New Year's resolutions. So in January, like, I go to the gym and it's absolutely packed, Okay. It's absolutely packed. You get in there and like every machine is being used, every weight is being used, and you're kind of waiting around. And what you know is, give it two weeks and it's going to be half as full. And then with each week after that, it kind of cuts in 50% after that until finally, at about now, I don't think I see anyone in there that's not a regular. Okay? So that's how it works. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And I'll tell you what it has to do with the message this morning because these New Year's resolutions, we all know what it's kind of like to set in our hearts that we're going to change something guaranteed for sure. It's never going to be the same after now right? Whether it be a New Year's resolution or not, you know, we'll, we'll look at, it, it could be small things like my diet. I'm going to start eating more healthy so I can be a healthier person. Or I'm going to like, our finances are out of control. We're just, we're going to put a budget on our finances and no matter what, you know, on paper it works out. So no matter what, we're never going to flex from that budget, right? Or maybe, maybe it's TV time. You're like, you know, we're watching way too much TV. We're just going to, we're going to control that. We're going to change that this year. We're going to change that this week, whatever it is. But we set in our hearts, we have these little things we don't see as big, but we have these things that we set in our hearts. We're going to do it. We know it's going to be good for us. We know it's going to be, you know, better for our relationships and so on and so forth. So we start off on these journeys only to find that, you know, within a few weeks, we lose our resolve and we lose our effort and energy and we're right back to where we started. I'm not saying it never works, but I think any, everyone in here can kind of relate to that in some place in their life. And the thing is, today we're going to talk about that, and you're wondering maybe, what does that have to do with a, a church service? Well, I'm going to get to that, because the, our ability to change even those small things is actually lined up in the same way with how we're created, and our ability to overcome things like our uncontrollable fears and anxieties as well. In fact, it's even bigger than that. I mean, we can have all sorts of things, like phobias. Like, I'm afraid of spiders, for instance. Okay, is anyone else in here afraid of spiders? That's a very small percentage. Well, I feel a little smaller. That's okay, whatever. You know what? It is what it is. So I'm afraid of spiders, but phobias, okay? You try to get, have you ever tried getting over a phobia? Maybe yours is heights or whatever it is, dogs. You try getting over that thing, it is terrifying. Yeah, have I forced myself to have spiders on my hand to try to get over it? Yes, I have. And it's changed the fact that when I see it, when I turn on the bathroom light and there's a spider on the floor, I scream like a girl. It doesn't change it because it's inside. Like something is in me that I can't change even if I give myself new information. It's weird. And this is the same thing that gets people stuck in addictions, you know, to alcohol, drugs, sex, food, you name it. Okay, so this morning what I want to talk to you about is what do all of these things and how we respond in them, whether we overcome or not, what do they have to do with each other? And that's what we're going to spend time on. And it may seem interesting. I mean, how does me being able to control how much pizza I have have anything to do with me struggling with uncontrollable fears and anxieties. Well, what you're going to find is, and, and this is where often we struggle, we don't often see the correlation between things because we typically split things up into two camps. We have physical and spiritual. Chris addressed this uh, a couple of years ago in the Heaven series when he talked about uh, how Greek thinking had pervaded the church, the early church, and they began to start thinking like that. But the early Christians and the early Jews and a lot of the Jews today still don't believe that. They think everything is spiritual and everything is physical. It's one. And for the rest of this message, it's very important that we all see it that way, or we're actually going to cut the legs out from underneath us. And I'll tell you why. It's because either we're going to look at our problems and say, oh, this is a spiritual problem, so we're only going to handle it in spiritual ways, or we're going to look at the next problem and we're going to say, this is a physical problem, so we have to handle it this way. And what we're going to find is, and what we found is, is and science even supports it, I mean, Scripture supports it uh, certainly, is, is that problems are both. We're physical and spiritual, and most often they have a physical and spiritual answer and component to, the, to us resolving them, okay? So at Encounter, we deal with the spiritual side of the bondage. This morning, we're going to look at the physical side of why we get stuck in the areas that we're stuck, and we're going to do so by looking at our brains, okay? Does it sound like fun? Yeah, it sounds like fun. There we go. I'm in, you're in, we're all in together. Well, you're here now anyways, and we locked the doors, so. <laughs> I'll let you out in an hour. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, so we're going to look at the four levels of the brain, okay? Now, I can't tell you when, you know, I, I mentioned all those different types of struggles. You know, I've talked to so many people, whether here at church or whether at the gym or whatever, and they share with me, they want to make these changes. They want to get over this struggle. They want to do something differently, but they just can't. And then, you know, so I start trying to give them advice, or you just start trying to counsel or give them a scripture verse. 
And you ever hear someone respond by saying, I already know all the right answers. I know what I should be doing. I know that it's wrong or I know that it's right. I just simply can't do what is right and I simply always end up doing what is wrong. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the guy that struggles in pornography in his marriage, I mean, he knows that it's wrong. He doesn't want to do it. He might even go as far as to find out that it's an insecurity that's kind of driving it. And, he, you know, he's struggling with rejection and that's why he's doing it. So he might even understand why he's doing it. Yet still, he struggles with stopping the bad behavior. So the question is, why is that? Why is it that we can know the right answer, but we can't change our behavior and we can't change our beliefs? It's like we get it up here, but something, there's a break somewhere, right? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7.15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Later on in this passage, he says the answer is found in Jesus Christ, and I hope you'll see that by the end of this message. He's actually right on that. But this is the, the human problem. We all, we all find ourselves struggling with this in some way, shape, or form. All right, so to, fi- to understand how this is going to work and why there's a break, because remember, there's a break. We know what is true over here, but then we can't seem to apply it to our lives always. There's always a break. Something falls, something falls apart somewhere in the process. And to understand that process, we're going to have to look at how our brain processes information. So once you understand how your brain processes, in- processes information, you can better understand why it is that we can hear something that should be so transformative, and yet we simply cannot do the things that we know we should or should not do. Okay, so we're going to start with the left and right hemisphere of the, of the brain. Okay, so you have a left side and a right side, and they have two entirely different functions, but they work together, okay? The left side, well, I'll, I'll do a quick pause here. You know, we often talk about the mind and the heart. We talk about the mind and the heart. You know, you get something in your mind, you know, you hear a scripture or a passage in the mind, but then it's like, how do you apply it so that it is entrenched in your heart and your beliefs, right? We talk like that. Okay, when we're talking about mind and the heart, we're really talking about one thing, and it's called your brain. It's called left side, right side. Your left side would be, when we're referring to the mind, we're often referring to the left sides of our brain. It's where we're, in, it, we're gathering information. But that information can't transform us until it's first gone through the right side of your brain, which is all about your emotions and feelings and experiences, which is what we often refer to as the heart. It's your behavior, okay? So with that in mind, let's take a look at what the left hemisphere, like what's happening in those hemispheres, okay? On the left side, we'll start there. This is what's engaging right now. I mean, actually, both sides of your brain are engaging now, but as I'm speaking to you, as I'm teaching, all that information is coming in on the left side of your brain. Okay, so when that information's coming in, before you can actually go and apply it to your life in any way, shape, or form, so even if you think, oh man, this is interesting, I'm liking this, before you can actually apply it to your life, it first has to go through a process. Okay, so I'll explain that in just a moment. So just to be clear, the left side, It's where all your thoughts, when you're reading, when you're learning, when you're thinking, it's also where your memories are stored. So if you have a conscious memory about something, if I asked, you know, if I asked the question, what did you eat for breakfast? And all of you start recalling what you ate for breakfast, that's all on the left side of your brain that's recalling that, okay? That's where it's stored. It's information. It's like a file folder or a computer in that sense, okay? But for for the information that you're taking in to actually change you, it has to go to the right side of your brain and it goes through a four level processing structure, okay? Now, what you need to know about the right side, unlike the left, so the left side's verbal, so it's, you know, what you hear, what you learn, what you can think about it, and you can put it to words. The right side is primarily nonverbal, so it's experiential. So all of your experiences, from the moment you were born till now, every experience that you've ever had, everything is recorded on the right side of your brain. Now, you may not be able to recall it. You actually can't recall things on the right side of your brain. You can only recall things on the left. But nonetheless, all of your experiences... Everything you've ever experienced, good or bad, is all there right now. And it's all affecting you right now, too. <laughs> okay? Whether you're aware of it or not, it's all affecting you. So that's what you need to know. So that's primarily nonverbal. This is the verbal. Okay? So now let's take a look at the structure it has to go through. Because in order for what I'm hearing today, or what I read in the Word this morning, in order for it to transform me, it first has to go through levels one, two, three, and 4 before I decide if I can believe it. Okay? And this is where it breaks down. So the first level is the thalamus and basal ganglion, or the attachment and bonding level. You'll see it on there? Just a quick side note. You notice how big that brain is? It's mine. It's my brain. <laughs> we actually, uh, we, we tried putting Chris's brain on there. Like, we took an image scan of it, but it was too small. It didn't show up on the power, PowerPoint. <laughs> so we're like, well, for sake of, you know, the picture here, I guess I can put my brain up there. It was humbling for him. Not surprising to me, or any of you. <laughs> that feels good. That feels so good. I just wish he was in here again so I could just stick it to him. 
Okay, but anyhow, in a loving way, we love each other. You know, he actually helped me with this PowerPoint this morning because I don't know how to do PowerPoint yet. So you'll notice on one of the levels there's a spelling error, and I want to point out just now, before I continue on, that spelling error is actually him, not me. Once again, like I said, big brain. I'm kidding. Okay, I'm kidding. We all know he's very intelligent. <laughs> and I'm very brave when he's not here. Okay, so anyhow, back to the first level. This is the first level that is going to process all the information that you take in. It's the attachment and bonding level. So at this point, you're and level, your brain is thinking who and what is important to you. Okay, so who and what is important to you is all decided at the first level in your brain, okay? And this is all done in your subconscious. This is not you thinking about it. You don't have conscious will at this point. It's all just happening. It's all feeling. It just happens very, very quickly, okay? So this contributes to addictions, sexuality, our bonds and attachments to those we love and to those we don't, okay? This, this level probably inspires more songs, stories, movies, relationships, and crimes than any other level of the brain, okay? So this level is very, very passionate, very, very passionate, either good or bad, but it's very, very, very passionate, okay? This is where your passion comes from. Level one, your thalamus and basal ganglion. Now, information has to first go there, then it goes to the second part, and it goes to the amygdala. Now, this is a really neat spot of the brain. This is your evaluation level, okay? So, it's the evaluation level. It's also often referred to as the guard shack or the guard dog or whatever you want to refer to it, but this guard shack. And basically, the reason for that is, at the amygdala level, what's happening is all of the information that's coming in, even right now, when you're looking at me, when you're hearing me, when you're seeing me, all of it's going through the amygdala, and your amygdala is telling you, am I good, bad, or scary? Okay, so what the amygdala is in control of is your fight and flight response. It's also in control of anything you give and receive emotionally. Okay, so if I'm going to give love or receive love, my amygdala is in control of that. Okay, so this is, what, this is the amygdala. Now, it's very, it's very, very important to understand a little bit more about this level because this level is still subconscious, meaning you're not thinking your way through this. You're not deciding this. By the time you're already saying, hey, I think that's scary, your amygdala has already told you and given you an, a, a subjective opinion on that. Okay, so that's important to understand. What's also important to understand with this level of the brain is any opinion that this, this level of your brain makes is permanent. So what, what kind of opinions it'll make is things like what you think about pizza, your amygdala tells you that, okay? And once you've decided, you've decided. There has to be, you can't just change that. What you think about spiders and heights, your amygdala tells you that. So if you're afraid of heights, that's your amygdala. Your amygdala says you're afraid of heights. doesn't matter what you try to reason yourself out of that, you can't be not afraid of heights, okay? In inner healing, we talk about lies that we believe, right? That are planted in our past through woundedness and all that kind of stuff. We talk about how when we believe a lie, you cannot behave contrary to what you believe to be true in your heart. What we're really saying with that is when your amygdala decides that something is true, whether it is true or not, you cannot behave and change what is already planted in your amygdala, okay? So that's quite fascinating. So if my amygdala, like when we talk about lies being planted in our hearts, we're talking about this part of our brain. That's what we'd be talking about in our hearts, okay? So if, if my amygdala says that I'm fat, if I go through a trauma, get hurt, and I come to the conclusion that I am fat, it doesn't matter what I see in a mirror, it doesn't matter how much weight I lose, it doesn't matter what anyone else tells me, I will always believe that I'm fat. Does that make sense? It's your amygdala. Once it makes a decision on something, it's permanent. It's very, very permanent. Now, I'm not saying that you can never overcome things in the sense of on your own. You can. You can learn to cope with things. You can learn to act contrary to your belief, but that belief will always be there nonetheless. Okay? So what's really fascinating about this is what we've learned in inner healing is Jesus actually goes in, physically removes lies, and he physically heals and changes people. What's really neat about that is we call it inner healing, right? See, and what I, I want you to be excited about this because we often, you know, we talk about healing, physical healing, and we're starting to see more and more of it at the church here, and, but we haven't seen like breakthroughs like other areas in the world, right? So we think, oh, maybe God's just not healing physically here. What I'm showing you here this morning is when he touches your amygdala, he's actually physically changing something in your brain. He's physically healing you. When he does inner healing and he takes out a lie, he's physically healing a part of your brain damaged. There's damage there. So he physically heals it and then he, and then he takes away the lie, plants in his truth, and you can actually change, okay? It's pretty incredible stuff. Is that not incredible? Yeah, he's the only one that can do that. Remember, amygdala, permanent, unless, unless you speak to Jesus, Okay? Pretty incredible. So anyone who's tried to get over a phobia of some kind or stop believing a lie about themselves know just how impossible to budge the amygdala actually is. You just try. I mean, maybe you can muster up enough strength inside to say, you know, I'm terrified of heights. I'm just going to, right? And we can do it. So we can muster up strength enough to stand here, but you're always thinking about it nonetheless, right? It's always there. It's going to always be there unless Jesus physically removes it, okay? So that's level two. 
Level three is the cingulate cortex, or what we call the mutual mind level or identity level. Right now, at this level of the brain is the first level of the brain where we begin to have conscious experience and our will. So when we start, you know, when you start kind of engaging what you think of yourself as you, uh, it's not quite there yet, but this is where that begins. Okay. What's important to understand is so this level is your mutual mind. So this level allows you to share in experiences with other people. Right? Whether you're going to have a good time or a bad time, all that kind of stuff, and you, know, you, you read each other and you enjoy each other's company, all that kind of stuff, that's all happening at level three in your brain. Level three helps you, you, know, you learn to share in experiences with others. It also helps you learn what it means to be yourself. Right? So that's level three. What's important to note here, though, is even as you're relating to others, all the information that you're deciding about them has already gone through levels one and two. If there's a break anywhere along those two processes already, the information you're getting here for level three, the decisions you're making with your relationships, is already skewed and in inaccurate. Okay, isn't that fascinating stuff? Yes, it is. That's what you're thinking. You're agreeing with me, I know it. Okay, because it is fascinating. It's fascinating to, to understand how we were created, what's going on when we're actually struggling, right? What's happening on the inside? Encounter, we already learned what's happening through the spiritual realm, but what's happening physically, and that's what we're looking at this morning. Okay, so once it's gone through level three, Right? Remember, if there's any breaks, the data is already corrupted. It now moves on to the next level, and that's the fourth and final level. That's in your right orbital prefrontal cortex, not prefrontal. Is that what it says? Yeah, font. Not frontal, it's prefrontal. Okay? The prefrontal cortex, or what we call the captain. Now, whenever you think of yourself as me, this is me, this is who I am, you are thinking, it's your captain that's engaging. Your captain is the one who tells you this is me. Okay, that's level four. That is your right orbital prefrontal cortex, okay? When properly developed, this level of the brain has executive control over the rest of the brain. Meaning, you can have information that comes in on the left side, right? And in order for that to actually change you, it has to actually go through here because, right, the, the captain has executive control. If the captain says, no, you're not believing that, you're not going to believe it. Okay, that's how it works. It's amazing to think of all these different things that are interactions that are going on in your brain all in a millisecond. It's happening all like this, right? It's going back and forth. Information is being transferred. We are by far the most complex machines ever created. By far. Not even, it's hands down, not, nothing comes even close to how we were created, right? So anyhow, this is the part that thinks of it as me, okay? So if this part of your brain is healthy and developed, what happens is in a stressful situation, you know, you're in a trauma, something bad happens, cat, the captain takes over immediately, and he begins to direct the orders to make sure everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. Okay, so in, when trauma happens, often the first thing that happens is your left side shuts down, meaning when people are in a bad circumstance, they're not logically thinking themselves through the issue. Okay, that part of your brain shuts down. It's the captain that takes over. You begin to do instinctive things and, and react and all that kind of stuff. Okay, that's level four. That's your captain, right? So it can, the captain has control over, and, and, and it actually has direct control, and it is actually what allows you to make good moral choices. So we think about our ability to stand against temptation, to say no to something that we know is wrong for us. That's coming directly from captain. Okay, so if your captain is healthy, you'll be able to say no to temptation. If your captain is unhealthy, you will not be able to say no to temptation. And remember, dysfunction always travels up through the hierarchical order. So at any level in which you have dysfunction, that just continues traveling up and it disrupts all the levels above it. Okay, so that's important to know that we're all messed up. Okay, so if... <laughs> We are, but we believe in Jesus, so I'll get to that. There's, there's good news at this. So it allows us to direct our moral choices, be creative, think flexibly, and even influence such de delicate uh, uh, things as your immune system. So even your immune system is controlled by the, by the captain, okay? So when the captain is strong, he or she maintains control when all the other areas of the brain can shut down, right? And it can resist you being traumatized when things go badly. So the captain is also what enables you to be yourself when you're in different emotions. You know, some people, they get angry and they become a different person. Or when they're afraid, they become a different person. That's just a sign that these parts of the brain are actually underdeveloped. So if these parts of the brain are developed and strong, th that person can remain themselves in all feelings. It doesn't mean that they don't ever get angry or afraid. They do. But even in their fear, even in their anger, they're still themselves. They're still the same person. Okay? So when you see that, when you notice that in a certain ways, in certain areas, I'm different, I become a different person, it's just a sign you need to grow. Okay? Now, when everything is functioning properly, information comes in on the left side and then goes through level one and four where it can be determined whether or not it's good information. And if it's good information, should we change our beliefs? 
you know, is it good information that will be stored for later, or is it bad information that we should flag as inappropriate or whatever it is, we shouldn't change our beliefs to, to adhere to this? Or is this scary information, like I see a bear and I decide this is scary, I'm not going to try to pet it ever again because that, that turned out badly, okay? When things are going healthily, though, you're, you're, like, the captain will make good choices on those that won't lead you into a bad, a bad area, right? But as we know, we all struggle with knowing what we ought to do and we can't do it, and knowing what we ought not to do, and still doing it. So we know that the dysfunction is in there. Each of us carry dysfunction at different levels, okay? So if everything's healthy, though, that means you can hear a message at church, you leave, you leave church, you go home, and you apply it immediately, and it just happens. That means, you know, you, uh, you go through a hard circumstance, and you don't change. You can remain calm and collected, and, and think your way through it, and you can help others in it, and, and all that kind of stuff. It also means that when you're faced with temptation, doesn't matter how alluring it is, you'll be able to make the correct moral choice. Imagine being able to do that 100% of the time. That would be a strong brain that could do that, okay? It also means, that, I mean, this part of your brain controls your impulses for hunger, sex, terror, and rage. So think of the implications, right? If all of that is under control, that means you'll never have, you'll, you'll never respond out of hurt, anger, or fear again. Now, do you know anybody that can do all of that? There's nobody that can do all that. There's nobody alive that can do all of this. And because, like, because none of us are totally whole in every way, none of us are completely healthy, each one of us have breaks along the process at different points and at different spots, okay? So what happens? How do these breaks happen? Because, you know, with my arm, my arm just works no matter what for the most part. Actually, I have a left shoulder injury right now, but for the most part it works. If I want it to go up, it goes up. If I want it to go down, it goes down. Information with your brain is a little bit more complex, Right? It should just come in here and then go through one through four and I should be able to make a proper choice based on what I've been given. But there's breaks. So what causes those breaks? We're going to look at it and what causes breaks is trauma. Trauma causes breaks. Trauma causes breaks along the road and where there's trauma, trauma actually causes physical damage that will now impede that part of the, the, uh, the brain from growing any further beyond that point. So it actually gets you stuck wherever the trauma occurred. Hey, this is precisely what we see when we're doing inner healing with people. We'll notice that in these one areas, or certain areas where they hold on to bondage, they become very much like they were, you know, they have never matured in those areas. Often they act like someone who's, you know, four years old or ten years old or whatever it may be, where that trauma happened. They get stuck there. This is why you get stuck there. It impedes growth. So, this causes breaks in the four levels of the brain and prevents us from being able to use the information gathered on the left hemisphere. Now, you might be thinking, but Stefan, I've never experienced trauma, so how did I get broken? Because when we think trauma, we're just thinking of some major events, right? Like a major event, if you've been abused, that's certainly trauma, okay? If you've been through, there was a tragic accident or a fire or something big like that, that's trauma, but you're thinking maybe, I don't know, I don't know if I even have any of that. My wife used to feel that way, and, and actually when we were learning about the different kinds of trauma, it was really enlightening for us. She always thought, I never had any major event that should have transformed me or rocked my world so badly that caused dysfunction. It doesn't make sense. But there's two kinds of trauma, type A and type B, okay? So the type B is those things like abuse, childhood uh, bullying, careless words that were spoken to you. Even things like a parent that wants to tickle their kids, and when they're totally done and they're screaming and they're totally done, you keep going. Those kinds of things cause type B trauma on your brain and actually impede them from growing further beyond those spots. It causes damage, okay? You, know, you might be going like this a little bit, right? It happens. No one raises kids without the need for inner healing, but we should be trying our best but you can't, okay? It's, it is actually a hopeless cause, but, but this is how it works, okay? So that's type B trauma. We all experience type B trauma because everyone has experienced something bad in their life. The only way that those bad things won't affect you negatively down the road is if in the moment of those bad things occurring, you had someone there to help you go from a place of trauma to resolution. They have to work you through that path. If no one's there to help you and no one has someone there all the time, you will end up with trauma on your brain that will cause physical damage, okay? The other kind of trauma, and this is the one that people often miss when they're thinking about things that I've experienced, is good things missed. The absence of good things in your life, okay? So there's a lot of things that we need in our early developmental stages that we actually require in order to become healthy and whole individuals. When those things are taken out of the equation, it actually causes trauma to the brain. And these can be things like not having parents who are emotionally available to you, not feeling like your parents loved and cherished you by virtue of your existence alone. It could be things like not having a lot of appropriate touch, like hugs and sitting on your parents' laps, stuff like that. You're like, what is that? Like, that's mushy. That's not important. It's critical. It's absolutely critical for the healthy and developing, uh, developing mind of a child, okay? Absolutely critical. We all need it. 
okay? It also includes things like maybe you didn't have adequate food or shelter or clothing, medical or dental care, all of those things that, that might be out of your control. But still, if they happen, if we experience those lack of good things, it actually leaves physical damage on our brains, okay? And anytime we have physical damage to our brains, it impedes growth, meaning we now have a break in the process. That's what leads to, I hear information, I hear a message, I read a scripture that's really powerful, I know the truth, but I simply cannot behave the way that I know it to be true, okay? And remember, the right side of your brain, it's nonverbal. So it doesn't tell you what it's thinking, it doesn't tell you its beliefs, it just feels and acts and behaves a certain way. It's very hard to get it under control, okay? Now, I will say here, I'm not trying to point fingers at parents because I'd have to point a finger at myself. Clearly, when I look over my own definitions of trauma, I've traumatized my kids, okay? And it is what it is. Some people think I traumatized them more than... But, I mean, like, it's different kinds of trauma. That tickling one really got me is what it actually got me. But anyways, whole point is, nobody can raise kids without trauma. Do you know why? Do you know what it would take to raise a kid that had no trauma and nothing to get inner healing from? This is what it would take. It would take two individuals, number one, that were completely whole and perfect in every which way. So how many people actually fit that bill? Nobody, okay? But it wouldn't take just that because not only would you have to be whole in every way, you would also have to be all-knowing in every way because, and you would have to be all-present in every way. You'd basically have to be God. You would have to be God because what you'd have to be is you'd have to be perfect in every way so you could give your kids exactly what they need, but then you'd also have to be there for everything that they ever experienced. And then you'd also have to be in their minds to then hear everything that they ever thought. And you'd have to be fully aware of everything they ever felt at any given time. If you could do all of that, then perhaps you could raise up a child that didn't need inner healing. That didn't actually have a break along the way. And the, pro and the whole point with that is that's absolutely 100% impossible. No one can do that. Okay, so these problems are aggravated even further. So we have breaks along the way. And then now the enemy comes in and he tries to build controlling strongholds and we get demonic bondage and all that kind of stuff. And now you see the spiritual and the physical working together and we get problems that are basically unlikely that anyone can ever break free short of a miracle, which is why we come to church and Jesus actually does those kinds of things. Here we see it and it's amazing. Okay, but that's what we see at Encounter. But back to the brain stuff. Now, what do we do? Okay, so at the Encounter, we learn how to deal with the spiritual side of things. But what do we do with our physical brains now? If, if all I'm saying here is that this is how it should run and none of you has your brain working that way, how do we actually fix that? Is there any hope? Is there anything we can do to heal our damaged brains and to grow them so they can become strong? And the answer is yes. There is hope. What, what research has shown that what grows your brain is joy. That's why it's the joy center, okay? Joy is this substance, is this thing, this emotion you think. I mean, what's joy? Joy, what they found in research, is joy is the most necessary thing in the early development of a child's life. To experience joy. They need to experience joy. When they experience joy, it stimulates the brain to grow. Much like resistance stimulates my bicep to grow if I want to work out. Right? If I want to get my bicep stronger, I, I subject it to stronger and stronger resistance so that I, go, I grow stronger and stronger biceps, correct? Your brain is the exact same way, but responds to a stimulus of joy. So when it, when it receives joy, when it experiences joy, it physically grows and becomes stronger. And you're like, stronger in which ways? Well, let, let me tell you. James Wilder said it this way. He said, having enough joy strength is fundamental to a person's well-being. We know that a joy center exists in the pre-right frontal cor orbital cortex of the brain. It has executive control over the entire emotional system. When the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, and is the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food and sexual terror and rage. When your joy center is full, when you are full of joy, you're able to do all of those things well. Is that not amazing? Does that not make you start thinking of some of the scripture passages that talk about joy in a different way? You're like, oh, now prayer and joy is, I pray that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And you're like, oh, wow, that has a whole new meaning when Jesus is praying. I'm receiving that. I receive that for me. I need that joy in me. I need to be full of your joy. I need to be able to do all these things. So when we're talking about joy, it's important to define it. What are we talking about? A happy feeling? Right? Is joy just feeling happy? Like if I go and eat pizza, I'm happy. I love pizza. Back on again. So I love pizza. It makes me happy. Is that joy? Does that grow my brain? The answer is no. Joy is not just feeling good. Joy is not just feeling pleasure. Joy is with someone relationally that someone is glad to see me. We'll see if we can make this work.
because I move my hands a lot. Don't touch this. I won't have to touch it. I don't need to touch anything. I'm all good. <laughs> and make you think of that. What's that song? Can't touch this. Da, na, na. Oh. <laughs> good thing my dad is not here. <clears throat> so, back to joy. What is, what is joy? Can't touch. That's, it's so distracting to me now that I'm thinking that in my head. See, but this is the brain, right? I know that I ought not to be thinking about it, but I can't stop thinking about it. I'm like, ah, doubt. Okay, so what do I need to fix myself so I can stop thinking about that song? I need joy, right? So, sorry. All right. Okay, so joy means someone is glad to see me. Okay, so joy that transforms you, the kind of joy that stimulates your brain to grow and become strong and healthy is only found in relationship. So it's relational joy. It's not just feeling good. It's not just feeling happy. It's actually that someone is glad to see me. When your brain is exposed, when you are exposed and in the presence of someone else that is truly glad to be with you, it actually causes your brain to physically grow. It's... Uh, um, when looking at the effects of joy on the brain, some neurologists have now said that the basic human need is to be the sparkle in someone's eye. Think about that. That's the basic human need, to be the sparkle in someone's eye. That's what I need most to actually grow and to flourish. Okay, in the earliest years of your life, experiencing joy is the absolute most important thing for you learning how to control your emotions later on in life, learning how to have good cognitive thought processes, you name it, it's, it's absolutely paramount. And it's easy to receive when you're a kid. Right? When you're crying, your parents pick you up and they kind of coddle you and make you feel good. You're experiencing joy. Every time you experience that joy, their brains physically start to grow. As they continue getting older, it gets a little bit more complex, but it's still easy. You know, toddlers, you, you're laughing at them and smiling and your face lights up. And what's really fascinating is they found your prefrontal uh, orbital cortex there. It relates to theirs up to six times per second and your joy actually builds each other's joy. So you smile, the child smiles, then you feel good, then they feel good, then they start laughing, they're giggling, and you guys are just going back and forth, and you have this wonderful time. It physically changes your brain and theirs, physically causing them to mature and become stronger, okay? Something physical that's happening. It's not just a feeling, it's physically doing something, okay? As adults, we continue to need joy, just like ch children do, and we receive it through two primary sources. Okay, remember, joy is relational, so we receive it in relationships with others, and we receive it through a relationship with, with Jesus. So joy-centric relationships is how we receive joy. Now, joy-centric joy relationships with others, I want to be clear here, it's not just being happy with someone. Remember, joy is someone is glad to be with me. Someone is glad to see me. That's what's required for joy. So when I wasn't following the Lord and I was living the party lifestyle, we could go and hang out together and do all sorts of bad things and have a really good time, stimulate all sorts of pleasure and feel happy, but not only does that not grow my brain, it actually impedes the growth. It causes damage. Okay? You following? So it's not just about feeling happy with someone. You have to experience joy. So the, the question is, if it's not just about being happy, how do we experience joy? Okay, well, to truly feel that joy where you know that someone is glad to see me, you have to have a foundation laid first. And the foundation for a relational joy to happen is this. It's unconditional love, openness, honesty, and trust. Okay, so those four things, and there's more things, I could have gone deeper into it, but those are just four main ones. That are, these, these four underpinnings, these foundational truths are absolutely necessary if you are to receive relational joy that's going to transform you. You need all four. Unfortunately, many marriages and families do not actually have these most basic ingredients for joy. Now you might say, yeah, but our house, I mean, we're happy. No one's fighting all the time. But just a lack of conflict and because everyone's smiling doesn't actually mean that you're experiencing joy. You can be totally wounded and not dealing with any of your junk on the inside and just be totally terrified to fight with anyone, so you just try to smooth everything over and try to make everything non nonchalant. You can do that and not experience joy, right? You can have a happy home where you do fun things together where actually there isn't unconditional love, openness, honesty, and trust, where everyone operates in secret, where everyone feels like you're only loved if you can do something, okay? So... What does a home look like that has these four pieces? I'll tell you. I'll just tell you a few things. These are a few pieces that are required to receive relational joy in a family, okay? When, uh, um, the first thing that you need is no to topic should be taboo in your home. Now, is there inappropriate ways to discuss things? Certainly there is. But no topic should be taboo. And this is something that we see lots that's creating unhealth in the Mennonite communities, and that's where we're from, right? That we're Mennonite background. But often there's, there's things you just don't talk about. Right? Sex is one of them. That's a really, really big one. You don't talk about sex. Right? Because that's just going to lead to all sorts of sin. 
But what happens is, as soon as you say, we, can't talk, we don't talk about this, and you don't open the door to your kids, what you've done is you've shown them that because they're going to have sexual feelings. They're going to be exposed to it everywhere else in the, in the world, if, even if it's not going to be at home. And what's going to happen is they're going to think, well, yeah, mom and dad, you love me, but if you knew about these feelings I had, you wouldn't love me so much, would you? Do you get what's going on? And remember, they're not thinking this thing through consciously, like kind of working it out. Well, if this all happens instantaneously, it's all happening on those first two levels. They're making these decisions. And if those first two levels decide that it's not safe to talk to mom and dad because they're not going to accept me, it'll, it'll cut them off. It'll, like it'll put a wall up that will now prevent those people and those kids from receiving relational joy. Okay, so what we, what we have to create is an atmosphere where no, ta- no topic is taboo. Topics such as sex, sexuality, puberty, attraction, all need to be addressed. The kids need to know what's going on and why and all that kind of stuff. They need to know. And then they need to be given healthy boundaries and parameters. Right? Explanations. And it should be done so in a loving way that doesn't bring any kind of shame or ridicule or mocking. Right? So that's one of the pieces. The next one is kids or spouses are stuck in negative emotions. What do we do with them? Right? And I see this often. I've heard of so many bad cases like this, right? But people need to be loved and helped, not just told that their feelings are illegitimate. Right? And what happens, you know, you might have a spouse that's stuck in a bondage from when they were younger, whenever it might be. They're struggling with fear or anger, and we just get upset, and you shouldn't feel that way, or you shouldn't be getting mad at that, or you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't feel. Well, as soon as you say you shouldn't feel, I'm now shutting a door for relational joy. Because you can't control your feelings. What we need is someone to actually walk alongside us. So when I have a feeling like anger and I can't control it, I need someone to come lovingly beside me to shepherd me and help me return to joy from anger. That's what I need. That's what I require. That's what kids require. Unfortunately, that's not what they get. Unfortunately, many times you'll have a kid that's struggling in, in an uncontrollable fear. Maybe it's in the dark. And you say, that's just stupid already. Stop that. That's just bad behavior. An uncontrollable feeling is not bad behavior. Acting out on an uncontrollable be- uh, feeling can be bad behavior. You following? So I'm not saying we don't discipline. I'm not, I'm not saying now, oh, like, if you ever discipline a kid when they're angry, then that's bad. No. You can discipline them if they act badly when they're angry. But just to discipline alone and say you should never be angry is, is actually detrimental to their brain developing. You'll actually create rifts and you'll create damage, okay? So, and, and you'll cut them off from receiving the joy that they actually need. I'll give you another couple here. Uh, it also means that when we, uh, oh, this is a really, really big one. Okay, what about... Um, Saying I love you and I'm proud of you to our kids and to our spouses, by the way. It can be. But when you only do those kinds of things when they perform and do something for you, you're actually training their brains to do a certain thing. Okay? See, relational joy means it's unconditional love. Means in order for me to receive relational joy, I have to feel that you love me no matter what. If the only time we tell our kids or spouses is that we love them when they've done something good for us, guess what we've done? We've created performance-driven people that actually don't know how to experience joy at all because what they feel is the only way I can be loved is if I can perform. Well, that's, that, that causes great dysfunction in someone's life. Think about this. If I'm only as good as my ability to perform, how many people can do everything at the best level? Nobody can. Nobody can. In fact, there's always going to be someone better in most everything. There's only going to be one person at the top of every field. So if we feel like I'm only as good as my ability to perform, I've now cut myself off from ever feeling love from anybody else. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't say I love you and that I'm proud of you when people do something good? No, I'm not saying that. You should do that. But you should be making sure, even more so, you're saying that I love you and I'm proud of you when they've done nothing to warrant it. Show them that they are valuable because they're your kids. They're valuable because they're a human being created in God's image. They're valuable because they're your spouse. They're valuable for who they are. That's what they need to hear. That's what they need to experience. It's only when we feel that way on the inside that we can actually experience relational joy. Our marriages should be built on truths like this and foundations like this. Unfortunately, many marriages struggle in secret sins like pornography or spouses uh, unwilling to work on their own woundedness. And as soon as you have someone not willing to work on their stuff and, and causing those rifts, you actually remove any possibility of either person receiving relational joy. Okay, joy transforms has to be built on unconditional love, openness, trust, and honesty. It has to be built on that foundation. And the reason is, like, like I said before, if it's not there, if that foundation isn't there, someone can even say, I love you, and I'm happy to be with you, and smile when they're around me. But if I'm thinking on the inside, yeah, but you don't know everything about me, I can't receive that joy. Do you see how that works? It has to be openness, trust, honesty. It has to be an open place. To know that you are loved by virtue of your existence alone is to experience joy in its fullest form. 
This can, ha- this can only happen in relationships where we feel that we can share our hearts without being shamed, ignored, or rejected. In relationships where we feel that we are loved and accepted because we are who we are, without having to change or perform to be accepted. Now, there's a problem with this source of joy as well, though. So as good as this joy can be in its purest form like that, and we can, by the way, we can have joyful relationships like that. We'll never get it perfect. No one will. But we can certainly get better. We can certainly get better at laying those foundational truths and experiencing relational joy with each other. But there's still a problem, okay? Because joy is like the, you know, the stimulus that grows a bicep, right? Joy grows your brain. But what joy can't do, joy can't fix physical damage on your brain. You see, if, there's a, if, if you've experienced a trauma and you've experienced damage to different parts of your brain that have impeded growth there, joy can grow all of the surrounding areas, but you'll still remain stuck in that one area. And this is why joy in relationship with Jesus is the most important source of joy that we could ever get. Only Jesus, right? Only Jesus can move and heal past traumas. Without him, all we can do is learn the best coping mechanisms. We cannot physically change what has already been done. Like I said with that amygdala earlier, if the amygdala has decided something, you cannot physically change that. At very best, you can learn to cope with it, and you can learn to get around it, and you can learn to whatever function, right? You can't change it. Only Jesus can physically go in there and rewrite what's already been written. He's the only one that can do it, and I find that just wonderful that he's created us in such a way that he is literally the only way. I love that. I love that. So for proper healing, we require a connection to Jesus. But secondly, this is what makes Jesus, the joy we get from Jesus, so much better than anywhere else, okay? It's the purest form of joy. No one on this earth, including my wife, can look at me and say they know everything about me. They can't. No one knows everything about me. In fact, I probably don't even know everything there is to know about me, right? No one does. We all have different things that we hide and different things, you know, maybe it's just not important, but no one knows everything about every thought you have, every feeling you've had, every sinful thing you've struggled in, everything good, bad, ugly, all that stuff. No one knows all of that. So because no one knows that, I'm always a little bit guarded in the joy that I receive from other people. Because there's always that that niggling thought in the back, well, if you knew everything I've ever thought about, if you knew everything that I've ever wanted to do, you might not feel so, so lovingly about me right now, okay? This is where it changes with Jesus. Did you know he's the only one that can look at you and say, I know who you are. I know everything you've done and thought about it and desired, and I love you anyways. That is joy in its purest form. Remember, joy needs a foundation of unconditional love. Only Jesus can look at you like that, see you completely bare and exposed, and say, I love you and accept you exactly the way you are. And that kind of joy gives us strength. In fact, this is the very thing that Jesus addressed with me when I gave my life to him. I I was following a life of sin, obviously drug dealer, all that kind of stuff, and I was abusive, angry, all that kind of stuff. I've told my testimony here before. As I was driving home, I felt like no one could love me for who I was. Look at that, the basic need to be the sparkle in someone's eye. What was the biggest lie to keep me from following Jesus? That no one could ever, I could never be the sparkle in someone's eye. How does Jesus address that? He said, Stefan, in the car, I remember to this day, Stefan, I know who you are, I know what you've done, and I love you anyways. I experienced something in that moment when he said that, that I'd never experienced before, and it gave me the physical strength I needed. Not a spiritual mumbo-jumbo strength up there, it's this lofty thing, no. That, what I experienced in that moment was Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's what I experienced. I physically didn't have the ability to change in the path and direction that I was going on. And when Jesus addressed that and his joy filled my brain, literally, it literally strengthened me to a place where I could turn around and walk in the other direction. That is the power of joy. It's not a spiritual physical. We're spiritual physical. We're one right? His spiritual joy, his presence of joy fills us and physically transforms your actual brain. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? It's only, I mean, his joy is our only hope of being strong enough to battle temptation. It's our only hope in being healed from past traumas, and it's our only hope to ever experiencing life-giving relationships with him and with others. You'll never even get those relationships with others to get relational joy. We're all too broken anyways. If you're not going to give your life to Jesus, you're never going to fully experience it with other people, let alone him. We got to go to him first and be satisfied in his presence. Give me one, one moment here. Doesn't that Nehemiah 8.10 just come to life learning about this? Doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Your brain was physically designed in such a way that only joy could strengthen it so you could be strong enough to stand against temptation. And here the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you're like, oh, that's weird that it'd be joy, not love. <laughs> weird. He created us. He knows exactly what we need. He knows better than anyone, and I'm touching this again, and it's cutting me off. Sorry. <clears throat> so, 
I'll go to a quick rabbit trail here, okay? So we're talking about the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now think about persecution. We talk about end times. You read your, your uh, Gospels and you read the New Testament, you're going to find that Jesus talked about end times a whole bunch. And he made a whole bunch of promises to those that would follow him. And he said that we would suffer, that we would feel pain, that we would be tortured, that we would be uh, ridiculed, mocked, lied about because we're, we're his followers, and so on and so forth. We were promised all sorts of wonderful things if we would choose to follow him. Okay, and then he said, only those who persevere to the very end will receive the promised crown of life. Basically saying, if at any point throughout all of this hardship that you experience, that you say, I'm not worth it, and you give up on me, if you deny me, then all of it's been for naught, and you won't actually receive the prize. And we look at that and we say, that's actually pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being tortured? Can you imagine being persecuted when you're, you're the one tied up, you read stories of a brother Yun and, and those kinds of things in China, and you read about him being tortured in the most brutal, awful ways. Can you imagine experiencing that yourself? And knowing that you could get out of it at any point if you just said, I, I deny Jesus. Can you imagine knowing that? Can you imagine experiencing that, how hard that would be? I mean, it's easy to sit here where we're sitting. It's comfortable and we have lots of freedom and say, of course I never would. But actually, put your, put your feet in their shoes for a moment. And it gets worse. What about, like, I mean, it'd be one thing if you could stand for yourself. Anyone in here has kids, what if they put your kids there and we're, and we're doing something to them? I mean, it's one thing to say, I would never deny Jesus to save my own skin, but would I deny him to save others? That'd be difficult, wouldn't it? That'd be a lot harder. How are we ever going to have the physical strength to do that? It's how we were created. We were designed and created in such a way that if we would spend time with him and grow in a relationship with Jesus, that his joy would literally heal and strengthen our physical brains, so much so that it would literally affect our ability to stand against even the strongest impulses such as fear, pain, and hunger, all the things that you would experience in persecution. He designed you to be able to endure, to be able to persevere, if and only if you would remain attached to him. That is fascinating. Physical, spiritual, together. I just, it makes me want to just worship and just read more and more and more and study more because I love this stuff. I love this stuff. We were made to run off of him. He is our fuel source. Now, sorry, I keep checking my time. I don't want to go over. Um, now, with all the stuff that we're learning here, each one of you should be just aching for me to be done, not because you're bored, but because you want to go and make an appointment for inner healing, right? It's like, I want to deal with those type A, type B traumas. Like, I'm in. I want to deal with that stuff. I want to go to an encounter, all that kind of stuff. And you should be shaking with anticipation to go home and spend time with Jesus to actually experience relational joy with him. Right? If you actually want to change, this is what you need. But the funny thing is we can hear this once again and we, you know, we, we're like, yeah, that's, that makes sense. I need to experience Jesus. I need to go get inner healing. But there's many of us in here that aren't actually going to go out and do anything differently. And, I, and the question I asked to that is, and I think I know why that answer is. And I think what we've been given, we've been given it from birth, that basic human need to be the sparkle in someone's eye. It's that need for joy. So we've been given a hunger for joy. Okay, so it's a hunger for joy. It's God-given. He created you that way. In the first years of your development, your parents feel that need for joy, don't they? Right? They hold you. They, they love you. They give you all the basic needs, that kind of stuff. But as you get older, their job is to now shepherd you to, to not get their joy primarily from them, but to now point you to Jesus so that you begin to get your joy from him, that he becomes your, your primary source of joy. That's the natural and healthy process that's supposed to happen for each one of us. What happens, though, because of our brokenness and sin and all the stuff that breaks all this process and our parents are broken and we're broken, what ends up happening, though, is we don't get shepherded properly. We don't receive the joy we need. And what ends up happening is we end up searching for a way to fill that hunger on other things in this life. And I'm going to call those things pseudo-joy. Okay, so pseudo-joy comes from behaviors, events, experiences, people, and substances. Pseudo-joy is anything that gives you pleasure. So anything that gives you pleasure can actually stimulate that desire in you for joy. It can be stimulated, and you might feel like you're receiving joy on, from anything that gives you pleasure. The only difference is it won't actually change your physical brain, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But these can be things like uh, comfort foods, chocolate, sex, work, gambling, entertainment, alcohol, drugs. Like I said, anything that causes a stimulating uh, pleasure pleasurable experience can actually fill that, okay? What happens is, now, is this always a bad thing? No. We experience pleasure in many good things. You go watch, you know, watch a movie with your spouse or with your family, and it's a good movie. Obviously, you can watch bad movies. But, you know, you go for a walk, you exercise, you have things that you like to do, you like to paint, you like to enjoy nature. These things will all stimulate pleasure, and they'll make you feel good, but they won't actually grow your brain, okay? But, so some of the things are good, some of them are bad. The problem isn't if we ever go to other things for pleasure. The problem comes when we go primarily to other things to satisfy that hunger for joy that's in us. 
You see, if I'm, if I'm already full, right, if I've already satisfied that hunger for joy on the pleasures of this world, I will feel like I have nothing left to give to my relationship with Jesus, and I won't actually pursue the very thing that could transform me from the inside out. And I'll give you an example of how this works, okay? If I eat, if I want to eat healthy, right? If I want to eat healthy, I can eat whole foods, vegetables, fruits, all that kind of stuff, whole meats and all that kind of jazz. What it's going to do is, if I eat healthy food all the time, I'm actually going to have a lot of health benefits from it, won't I? Right? It's going to make me feel full, but outside of feeling full in the moment of, of, of eating, I'm actually also going to benefit from it in the rest of my life. I'm going to be stronger, stronger immune system, I'll recover faster, all that kind of stuff, I'll have more energy. Okay? That's if I fill it up with whole foods. What if I go and fill my, my hunger for food up on, on Big Macs? If I always go, I'm not saying it's, ever, it's always bad to go eat a Big Mac, right? We'll go and do that with the family and stuff, it's fun, especially when we go swimming, we go to McDonald's after, yada, yada, yada. Whole point is, it's not bad. If I primarily go and fill my, food, my hunger for food up on Big Macs, though, would that be bad? You see, I would still feel full, wouldn't I? Whether I eat vegetables or Big Macs, I feel full either way. The only difference is, one has healthy benefits for my body, one has unhealthy benefits for my body. Okay, the same is true with joy. When we primarily turn Jesus into our source of joy and pleasure and satisfaction in life, he not only fills up those, those longings in our heart, but he actually makes us physically stronger to withstand temptation, pain, to be in control of your emotions, to have better uh, relationships and all that kind of stuff. Okay, if I go to things of the world, I may physically lose my hunger for joy and feel like I'm getting satisfied, but in fact, I won't have any transformative power in and of myself. I'm going to close here. And uh, yeah, when Jesus created all things, he said it was good. He loves it when we appreciate and enjoy his creation. He loves it when we have good hobbies that we delight in, when we share in joyful, loving relationships with others, when we enjoy eating a feast from time to time. He loves this stuff. But he never intended for those things to be the food by which we would attempt to satisfy our souls. He created us in such a way that we could only ever be mature, healthy, and whole if we came to him to be satisfied first. Isaiah 55 verse 2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Bow your heads. I'm going to pray for you and then we'll be done for today. Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that you made us in such a fantastic and wonderful way. And everything you did was good. When you, when you created all things and said it was good, it truly is good. And you have made the most complex pieces of machinery in us as human beings. We want to thank you for that. And Jesus, I thank you that you made us in such a way that we would never operate to our full potential without first being connected to you, the vine. So Jesus, prayer is for everyone in here today and this morning that you would impact us in such a way that you would help us let go of the things we're, we're leeching off of in the world, that we would be able to attach fully and wholeheartedly to your spirit and your presence. God, I'm asking that you would bring alive our relationships with you, that we could experience joy. I'm asking, God, if there is un unresolved traumas that we have gone through from our past that we aren't aware of, that you would bring these things up to the forefront of our minds so that we can go and get inner healing. And Jesus, lastly, I just, I just ask that you would do this for us, that you would turn us into the people you need us to be, and not just for our sakes, but for the honor and glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.